back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is one of my favorite people, Scranton comedian Dan Hopple. Dan and I recorded this over the summer right after he got out of the hospital. He was almost dying for a while. There was that. There's even a Facebook group called Is Dan Hopple Still Alive? So every week I push this episode back was kind of a gamble. But Dan's still alive, which is great, I guess. Mainly because this episode is still relevant. So thanks for holding on, Dan. You can die now. Feel free. We'll miss you, but you hung around for a while. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that. Dan's a really funny guy. He's got a super dark sense of humor. He is an absolute asshole at times on stage, but couldn't be sweeter off of it. He is definitely worth the wait. We've got another On The Zoom comedy show happening on Saturday, February 27th. Emma Paxson from Rochester, Holly Griffin from Binghamton, and New York City's Caitlin Palufo will be there. Palufo was on Colbert. She is extremely funny. So are Paxson and Griffin. You'll have a great time, so get your tickets now. They're 5 bucks and available through Facebook and Eventbrite. You can also sign up for the Patreon and get access to every show we've done and will do for just 5 bucks a month. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Peeling back my sunburnt skin I'll wait outside your bedroom I, I hope they let me in Hey, thanks so much for doing this. And I gotta say, uh, you were a tough git. It's honestly, it's believe me, it's not because people are pulling me in all directions. It's totally health-based. I know, like, like I've asked you, I don't know how many times I've asked you, four I've or five, and, and dude, dude, like, I'm impressed, because normally people say no, or they blow me off or whatever, but you checked into the hospital to get away from this. I did, I did. Fantastic I, commitment. You know, I got, I went there, and they were like, what's wrong? And I said, somebody wants me to be on a podcast, and they were like, that's not good enough, and I said, my chest <laughs> really hurts, and they were like, okay, you could stay. And then they made me leave because I wasn't dying, and we're here. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll die soon. Exactly. And then it'll be worth it. Exactly. Exactly. Dude, now let's be real. If I die before this comes out, this will be the best podcast you – like, it doesn't matter how shitty it is. Everybody's going to listen to it. Well, that's the thing. Like, like I have um, – I'm, like, three months ahead of schedule. I have honestly no idea when any episodes are going to air. I shuffle them all the time because it's like a like – I'm tinkering with a fantasy baseball team. Like, I have no idea what I want to do. And my my legitimate serious thought was, do I wait for Dan to die? I mean, there's, do there's I play it so you can hear it? There's definitely value in waiting. I will say this as a podcaster, in all seriousness, it's really good to have a lot of episodes canned because even a lot of professional podcasters that I listen to often run out of material because of different things that come up. So having a lot is a good thing. Don't ever be upset about that. But yeah, I did try to get away from you using my health as a scapegoat and it did not work. And uh, I guess now we're going to talk about my life for a while. <laughs> well, before we do that, I want to talk about me. <laughs> you, it, it, you know, it's funny. I, I think you like you have a horribly dark sense of humor, which I is do. awesome. I do. Yeah. And, and I do too. But I think uh, I'm trying to think the, like the early memories I have of you. Mm. And we had known each other for a while. But do you remember uh, we were down at Scranton at the Keys? Mm -hmm. And I think you were one of the first people I talked to after there was a shooting 
at the newspaper office I used to work for in Annapolis. Yes. And I told you about this, and you're like, wow. You're like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. And I'm like, well. And I think I made a dumb joke about it. And I know I did material on it on stage. And uh, and I, I don't think I've ever done it again. But that's where my brain went. When do I know Dan Hopple? Oh, yeah. Five people I knew died. That's well, how I know Dan Hopple. In fairness, most people know me via tragedy. So that's unsurprising. <laughs> I no, I I do remember that, and I remember the first time I met you, and that I I felt really bad. But I, I the big thing about it was that I remember you were from New York, and yeah, you, have, you have to no, I know, but you have to remember for like any comic outside of the New York area, hearing the phrase New York comic is something that we number one look up to, and number two often gets thrown at us as like, well, this person is better than us, and. I was ready to expect you to not be good. And you were fucking hilarious. And it made my day. And you're one of my favorite people in the world. And I, it, I, but believe me, it says more about me than it does about you. That that was my first instinct, because I think we all have that ego that like, you know, we always want to be the best. And we hate people who we don't know saying that somebody else is better for no reason. But you were one of the first people who actually made me realize that there's no divide between New York comics and other comics, that it's just there's good comics out there and there's not good comics out there. Well, I appreciate that. And I think you're lying. I think you're completely full of shit, but I'm, that's why I had you on the podcast. Always full of shit. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I was like the dynamic Binghamton and Scranton comedians had. Mm-hmm. So like, like I know I first met you at Maddie B's. I, I remember seeing you. Yeah. I don't remember meeting you. Like, you know, like I, I remember seeing you on stage. I don't remember our first interaction. Well, that's the thing. So to me, you were the guy who was like, cause you ran Maddie B's, right? Yeah. At the, at the very, <laughs> at the very end, I ran it into right. the ground, but I wasn't there for a lot of it. I only hit Maddie B's a couple times ever. So to me, you were always like the keystone of Maddie B. So when I went up there, it was you and there was a i feel like there was a girl who was involved too and i feel yeah, deb miller deb, oh not yet god damn what is wrong with me you know what i know it was deb and i was confusing her with somebody else who i don't want to mention because i love okay. deb so forget that forget i even said it i know who you're talking about yeah you do you absolutely do yeah. and it wasn't because this person was necessarily running it it was because they just acted like they were all around it yeah, it was a, a former mayoral candidate yes, in Binghamton. That is correct. <laughs> Dude, yeah, but but honestly, you and Deb were like, I will remember the first time you got on stage. And I was like, this dude is solid. He has command of the room. And then Deb got on stage and I was like, she's solid. She has command. And you guys were so self-assured when I went up there nervous as hell. And that to me, like you guys made me feel the same way I felt the first time I watched Zach, which was like, I'm watching professionals do their thing. And that definitely, I mean, in a, in most ways actually gave me comfort because I felt like, okay, if somebody could do that, I could do it too. Well, how long have you been doing stand-up? Because I know you've been on stage longer than I have. So I just, as of May, uh, hit six years. Okay. And you're from Scranton, and like that's where I you am- got your, like, did you get your start at the Keys or, or somewhere like that? I actually, so I got my start at Wisecrackers, uh, the comedy club down here that's in the casino. It's run by a former comic, or by a comic. I shouldn't say former comic. He's definitely still a comic. They ha- used to have an open mic there. And you know when you think of like, Old school stand-up comedy, like dark, dim clubs, a lot of drinks, open mic night kind of stuff. When I first went there, that's what it felt like. And it sucks because he ended up closing down the open mic soon thereafter, probably because of me. But I, uh, of course. But By the way, that's why Maddie B's died. You came up there a second time. Fuck it. Get it out. Well, dude, my whole family's dead. If you haven't noticed, (laughs) flowers wither in my wake. Birds fall out of the sky as I pass by. It's not great. (laughs) Um, No, I, uh, so... 
I got divorced. And well, I walked in on my wife with another dude, which is a whole different story. But and I have, believe me, I'm not through just throwing it out there flippantly. I have zero problem with it because I wouldn't have been a comic if it hadn't happened. But 13 days after I walked in on my wife, screwing around with another dude, I tried comedy for the first time. And I planned on doing it one time to see if I can do it because I was going through a phase of my life where I was like, shit, I don't know who I am. This is something I always wanted to try. And it went really well. And the host of the show said to me afterwards, literally from the microphone on stage in front of the crowd, hey, you'll be back next week, right? And I was like, I guess I will be. But to be honest, I fell in love with it. Like that three minutes that I spent on stage was the most exciting three minutes of my entire life. And that counts every sexual encounter. <laughs> Come and, on. It, and it lasted twice as long, right? <laughs> uh, the first time I was ever on stage for comedy was the day I eulogized my grandpa. Holy so, Christ. So he died. I did. Um, I almost said I did a set. <laughs> like, like I did. I said I, that so about my mom's up. funeral. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> Zach so, criticized the jokes I made during the eulogy. I'm not even kidding. Oh, what a guy! No, he's amazing. I loved it. Go ahead. If I'm sorry. <laughs> no, so I I purposely wrote the eulogy to be funny because my grandpa's a funny guy. And had I been serious for seven minutes, uh, he might have come back to life and beat the shit out of me. Like it, it's just ne- <laughs> we were never we were never a very very serious family. True. So absolutely, uh, you know, it's just it, my dad. And, and my aunt, they were a little more serious, but they joked too. So I could pretty much uh, run my eulogy set at the open mic, and it could have been the same. Like, I just brought stories right. and funny stories, and that, my first open mic went really well. Mm-hmm. But I always say, like, it was going to go well because, uh, I don't know, I just buried my grandpa. <laughs> like, I I felt bad enough. What, are they going to boo me? Right, like, exactly. It's, no, you're at- it's like It's like playing with a loaded deck. I feel like the smartest way to come into comedy is to come in with your most vulnerable self. When I went on stage for the first time, I made nothing but fat jokes. But they weren't just, ha-ha, I'm fat. They were talking about how people treat me differently for being fat. Like, no offense to the deceased, but that uh, John Panette. Oh, he's great. He was a very famous comic, and I respect what he did. But to me, I always felt like there's another way to do fat jokes that aren't just making fun of your... Like, I love making fun of myself. But there's so much to make fun of myself besides being fat. Whereas I feel like with being overweight, the coolest thing to talk about on stage is actually the things that I go through that people don't go through that aren't fat. You know what I mean? Like the weird ways in which people, and I don't mean maliciously, but the way in which people might say offhanded things to me without realizing that it's offensive or stuff like that. I find that interesting. I find it a, a source of material to mine a lot. But I really leaned into that. I wanted to be as vulnerable as I could be the first time I went on stage, and it paid off. And I, it pay, obviously paid off for you, too. <laughs> In my mind, I just, like, when you're saying, oh, it's the way people treat me, I just got this impression, like, like this vision of a waitress, like, putting her hand in there, like, are you finished with that? Like, with trepidation. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, no. I used to, I always wanted to write a sketch, a very, like, a, I don't, a very short, like, 30-second sketch of me and a very pretty girl being out to dinner. And the waiter bringing out a salad and a giant like meat and potatoes kind of plate. And he recites what they are as he puts them in front of us. And he puts the obvious big plate of food in front of me and the salad in front of her. And I just go, the uh, the salad was mine. mine. I, I ordered the salad. The salad's mine. And he says he's sorry and switches it. And as soon as I take a bite, the chair breaks and he calls me fat. And that's the end of the sketch. <laughs> 
and again, when I say people treat me differently, I don't mean like it's all the time or people are shitty to me. It's those weird things that people just assume fat. Like I never take the last piece of any food at any party or social gathering ever. I'm trained not to because that's the fattest thing you could do. So I don't do it. You know what I mean? I know there's nothing wrong with that. I don't look at anybody else weirdly for taking the last slice of pizza or the last bagel or whatever. But I know that there's a stigma attached to, oh, he's the fat dude and he's taking it. So plus, I don't conform to any a lot. Well, a lot of fat dude standards. I don't like cake. I don't like donuts. I don't like shit like that. I would eat a whole watermelon in one sitting if I was given the opportunity. No question. You, this is so stupid of me, but like my friends used to make fun of me because I was cutting a watermelon. You know, I was I was out of college and and we were we were home for summer break and I was cutting the watermelon and I said to my friends, you know, if I had to. I could eat an entire watermelon. And they're like, under what circumstance would you have to fucking eat an entire watermelon? A Tuesday? I said the same thing about, uh, if I had to, I could make grilled cheese all day. Absolutely. And they're like, what are you doing with your life that you think these things would actually happen to you? I'm living. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I feel you on that. And, yo, grilled cheese is one of my... I haven't had one in a long time because it's one of my uh, weak points. I could... I have made some truly horrifically delicious grilled cheeses. For instance, one great tip that people don't know, you should fry bacon in a skillet and then reserve the fat and cook the grilled cheese in the bacon fat. It's goddamn amazing. Now, why were you in the hospital? (laughs) (laughs) I just... (laughs) I can't see that as good, like, at all. I mean, I wouldn't make a daily habit out of it. I I did that, like, three times in my life. Honestly, when I want a grilled cheese, I just put two pieces of bread with cheese uh, in the toaster oven. No butter, no anything. I know it's not healthy, but I try to make it as healthy as possible. Like, for me to actually put it in a skillet or something with butter or anything for one it's too much work it's so much easier to just put it in the toaster oven with nothing and two like a, in all seriousness i know that i don't need that shit regularly so i if <laughs> yeah, i'm yeah. something does, though? unhealthy i'm gonna try to make it as healthy as possible i'm really interested to see your take on this because sure. uh one i always go two slices of cheese on a on a grilled cheese sandwich mm. i think you have to it's you know when you see those old commercials like campbell's tomato soup and grilled cheese like the, the grilled cheese is coming she- apart it's apart. melted yep. you don't get that with the one cheese so i think you that's know. how you go so let me and, ask you uh, what kind of cheese real quick okay so this is how charmed of life i lead i am a craft guy craft okay. yellow singles sure so i'm i'm at the grocery store a couple of weeks ago and they were all out of craft yellow cheese mm-hmm. but they had velveta slices oh no it's fine but oh, i was wait. like it, but Is in it my like head i was like slice? like normal yeah, like, cheese slices. Yeah, yeah yeah like 32 oh, slices i never saw that before i thought they only neither made five yeah neither have i but so i pulled this out and i go eh, do i really want it and like i really had that thought was like my life can't get any worse and I was like, you know, you know, I got to put myself into perspective. It's not crap. Velveeta is just as good. I believe uh, it. Yeah. So I butter both pieces of bread. Sure. I got two slices. I love a piece of ham in there. Toasted ham and cheese. Oh, I love yeah. it. Oh, God. But, yeah. but you know what? You know what I think is the best sandwich I've ever made? Uh, and I can't get a lot of people to try it. Uh, and it's really a holiday meal for me. My mom makes great stuffing and my grandma makes great stuffing. Uh, when I go to Thanksgiving or Christmas, I don't give a shit about turkey or ham. I just get a whole plate of stuffing. 
but they make so much because I love it that they send me home with tons of it. So what I do is I make grilled cheese and stuffing sandwiches. That sounds amazing. Dude, so it's really good. You pat the, set, the stuffing into a patty, like a yeah. bread-shaped pat. That's amazing. Basically. That sounds delicious. Yeah, I've and then heard I, of that with like tater tots and other things. I never heard of it with stuffing. That's really brilliant. Yeah. And it, it's I've got a Foreman grill too, and I really only use oh, the they're, they're I use good. the grill for just that kind of sandwich. Yep. Uh, so it, it condenses it and it cooks the stuffing as well. Yeah, so it's great. It really is good. Also, no, I would try that in a heartbeat. I love stuff. Yeah. I actually didn't like stuffing until I was an adult, probably because my parents weren't really stuffing fans, so I wasn't exposed to it much. Um, so so when they died, you're like, hey, give me more stuffing. I was, I was. Okay, I actually eat it out of urns. I uh, no, I. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, my, my ex-wife got me into stuffing her family. My family had a lot of great Italian cooks, but so did her family and they cooked different types of things. So when I got married, I ended up being open to this whole new world of old Italian style cooking that I'd never experienced just because my parents and my old Italian aunts and stuff happened to be into different Italian ethnic foods than her family was. So things like uh, a lot of different fishes, stuffing, some dessert, stuff like that I had never had before. I got to try through them. And stuffing was one of the big ones because they, her grandmother used to make a delicious sausage-based stuffing that was just unbelievable. And after, ever since then, I, I've always been a fan. I always think that's funny. Like, like every once in a while, like I'll miss I, – I almost never miss my ex-girlfriend's. Like it's taken me years to, oh, to yeah, do that. No, yeah. But like my high school girlfriend, her mom made and I have no idea what's in it. She called it meat spread, which sounds sexy, but it was like it was like a, a like a bread and sausage casserole or I I don't even know what meat it was. That's awesome. uh, but meat yeah. spread. And it was so good. Yeah. I miss that about yeah. her like, like oh, and, and, and the italian food like that's what i miss out of most of the relationships that have failed in my life what i miss most is the other people around the relationship and the food like i don't yeah. miss most of the girls i've been with but my one ex i miss her kids very much because i was with them for a couple of years i i miss some family members of other exes and my, my ex-wife and I have a pretty decent relationship, mostly because of comedy, because I, and I hate to say this, but after, I never loved her as much as I ended up loving comedy. So I know we weren't meant to be together and I don't, and we, we've become good friends since all that shit went down. Now, granted, I'm six years removed from it. So it's very easy to say that now, but at the time I was devastated, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think there's any honor in having a relationship or or necessarily missing your exes, I think that as, as long as you learn from the relationships, you're good. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And like, like you said, like with your ex-wife, like you, if she didn't cheat on you, you wouldn't have been on stand. Like you wouldn't absolutely. have been doing stand up. Absolutely right. Yeah. There's no chance. When I was married, I started listening to the Pete Holmes podcast, not to promote another podcast, but I was listening to that. And he would have comics on all the time, and they would talk about the art of stand-up. And I started to learn that the thing that I would do that a lot of people do in their lives, which is every time you tell a funny story, you kind of edit it and work out the kinks and get better and better at telling it. I didn't realize that that little thing that I did like in the office or around family was the same thing stand-ups do, just on a much better scale. And it kind of took away the mysticism and magic of stand-up for me and made it seem attainable. But I was still married. Hey, buddy. There's a, so for anybody listening, 
I could see Mike, but you guys can't because we're doing a Zoom meeting, and his adorable cat just ran across the screen, and it was gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, the, I got two chasing a fly, and then my buddy Dennis, he just ran right over the keyboard. There was a moth or something in my room last night, and let me tell you, I'd rather be on fire than have a fucking fly in my room. I cannot stand it's the most annoying thing in the world. We actually have a cat now and I, I I'm as allergic as I am to him. I want him to be in my room more just because he's so much fun and also to kill the flies. The pest control. That's the best part of having cats. Wait, let me be clear. Not there's flies in my room. There was one fly, just so we're clear. Um but yeah I when I uh was still married I idly thought about trying stand-up, but, and I don't mean this in an arrogant way. I just thought there's no future here because I'm either going to be shitty at it or if I'm good at it and actually good enough to do something with it, I'm going to have to travel a lot because no stand-up comic could just live in one place. And I was married and I was happy with my marriage at the time. So the idea of being away from my wife at that time, I I didn't even consider it. So stand-up to me was just off the table. I was just 13 days removed from my marriage. Five days afterwards, I went through a five-day funk of, like, being miserable, which I think most people would go through. You know, like, the not showering, not eating, not drinking, just being in a hoodie and sweatpants and, like, walking around your house aimlessly and listlessly. That was me for five days. And at five days, I was like, fuck this. This isn't good. Because I know people who have been divorced for 20 years who were like this. And I was not going to do that. There was no question that I was not living my life like that. So... I uh, decided that I'm going to, you know, start doing things that I want to do with my life if I can't have my marriage. And at the top of that list, without even searching for an answer, was stand-up comedy. It popped in my head immediately. It was something I'd always admired. And it was supposed to be a one-time thing, a way to challenge myself. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So I got on stage. I wrote three minutes worth of material. I went to the... It was funny, too, because I remember going to Wisecrackers and seeing, like, guys walking around sport coach drinking bourbons, and I was like, holy shit, this is stand-up comedy, and I was so intimidated. And then I got on stage and did really well, and I, it changed my life forever. And I, I don't say that lightheartedly. I don't say that uh, with any hyperbole. Stand-up comedy changed my life, no question about it. I'm going to go back. When you say you walked in on her, was she having sex with somebody else? She was. I didn't actually see the act. I wa- So okay. we had a two-floor house or a two-floor apartment, uh, a half a double, and I walked in, and it was really funny because my dog was running around downstairs, and my wife worked at night. And I worked in the daytime. It was a very, it was, and it was, it was just the way it was. She had a really good job that was at nighttime. I had a job that was at daytime. So I came back at around like 10 in the morning because I I was driving for work and I had to swing by the house for something. And I remember my dog, who would usually be upstairs asleep with her at that time, was downstairs running around alone. And I'm like, that's weird. She's never away from the dog. And one thing leads to another. She was upstairs with the dude. I never actually saw anything. She came out of the room literally fixing her shirt like you would see in a movie. Like the way that oh, you, yeah. the way a bad screenwriter would like telegraph to you that this person's cheating. That literally happened. So anytime you ever see a movie and you're like, that's too unrealistic. That's not how somebody would walk in on somebody cheating. It absolutely is. It happened to me. <laughs> But yeah, I walked in on her with another guy. It was, she, I was with her basically from the age of 12 to the age of 31. That's crazy. So, well, we we were on and off throughout our teens and stuff. And then when I was 21, I proposed to her 
and we were back together and then we were together from 21 to 31. So it was, uh, she was the, probably the, a big part of my life. I mean, no, she definitely was a big part of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And it was funny too, because when, when it happened and I started telling people close to us, nobody believed me. They thought I was making a joke, not a stand up comedy joke because I wasn't a stand up comic yet, but I made jokes once in a while and I would fuck with people and they were all like, Oh, you're kidding. Right? Like there's no way you and her broke up. You guys are perfect for each other. You've been together forever. And it was a hundred percent true. And I, I don't hold it against her. She was in a really shitty position where she was falling out of love, which happens. And she felt trapped because everybody thought we were supposed to be together. And honestly, if I was in that position, I don't know what I'd do. She felt like the whole world was telling her she was supposed to be with this one person and she wasn't happy with this person. And I don't think she was necessarily emotionally equipped to deal with that. And she handled it in the wrong way. But it's still not a situation that I would want anybody to be in, including her. Yeah. I mean, like, is she happy now? Do you know? As far as I know, she is. I mean, uh, I don't want to talk too much about her love life because I don't know what's going on with it at the moment. But the last time I talked to her, she was very happy with the choices in her life recently. And I'm happy for her. I, I, I truly, with all of my heart, want nothing but the best for her and her family and her boyfriend, if she has one, and anybody that's involved with her. I really do. I don't wish I Believe me, I have plenty of other exes who I would wish ill on before my ex-wife. <laughs> I do. I really do. Even though she cheated on me and wrecked our marriage, I wouldn't. Let's put it like this. If she hadn't cheated on me, we're not having this conversation right now. I wouldn't know you. There's right. zero chance I would know you. And you fell in love with Zach Hammond. Yeah. So it all worked out. Better than a wife, to be honest. (laughs) He really is. I mean, the blowjobs could use some work, but otherwise, he's great. He just needs to shave a little bit. That's the thing. It tickles so much. But then the worst part is, right after he shaves, you get that stubbly burn, and it's just, it's a lot on the groin. You know what I mean? Does he take off his glasses? He doesn't. He doesn't. No. It's, that's kind he of he doesn't I mean, he still I mean it's good it's good that he knows where everything is but like doesn't that don't they get in the way I mean he does it in a full suit it's really annoying sometimes wow yeah that's gonna make you feel special though yeah you know at first it did but then I was like I don't like how uh, you could see my body and I can't see yours it was it's it was it created a an imbalance in the relationship Right, so, it was like a power struggle. Exactly, exactly. And unfortunately, if you're in a power struggle with Zach Hammond, you normally lose. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, th- that's one way to guarantee he'll listen to this. Absolutely. I'm going to talk <laughs> about all Zach's blowjobs. Um, no, and we should say Zach is in a very happy, committed relationship, and uh, he hasn't blown me since they started. So, yeah, so all we're doing is waiting for him to, you know, exactly, get out of that one and come exactly, back. Waiting for that one to fall apart so that we could get our BJs again. So okay, so you you're on the road with him, not not all the time recently. No, not like, recently, but yeah, I was. Uh, but what's that like with you? Like he's he's obviously yeah, your best friend, the best time and, of my life. Oh yeah, okay, uh, yeah, without question. Uh, being on the road with Zach, with Pat George, with Bill Russell, with John Miles, with all those guys has been amazing. Being on the road with you, coming up to New York to do shows with right. you. I know it's not technically on the road for you, but for me, it's a road show. Well, it's uh, not in my house. Well, yeah, that's yeah, that's true too. I mean, absolutely. And plus, a lot of the you're in Binghamton, and a lot of the shows we've done have been outside of Binghamton. So yeah, that's yeah. still. Um, I honestly. I have never had more fun in my life than I have being on the road, especially with Zach. Uh, Being on the road with your best friend is a lot of fun. Zach's also really cool because we have such a good friendship that when we have to drive for like 14 hours at a time, 
there's nothing wrong with us being silent for a while. We're comfortable with each other's silence. Like we could sit there and be alone in our thoughts, even though we're next to each other and it's okay. But doing shows, meeting people all over the country, it's been insane. I don't like, I literally never thought in my life I would have people, doctors, engineers, shit like that coming up to me and being like, I can't believe what you would do. And I'm like, dude, I tell dick jokes. You have like 20 years of education. You are way better than me. I sleep on a mattress on the floor. But it's <laughs> but the thing is, and I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm talking about all comics. We have the ability to make people forget their problems. And it's a powerful medicine when you really think about it. Yeah. I think you guys are coming back from Maine. And yes. we did a show, yes. show Whitney Point. And I got to tell you, I love you, pal. But I was ready to kill you or... I don't know what was going to happen, but when I hosted the show and Hal Stewart went on next and you followed and the audience was not the best, but I'm going to say maybe 35 seconds in your set. You said, oh yeah. And you're like, Hey, quit being a cunt. Or something like that. And this is the people on the side of the bar. And this is the second show I had done there and the last, which is not because of you. But but I was like, oh my God, I just lost this venue. He just called somebody a cunt. I lost this venue. The fucking crowd loved it Mm -hmm. and they ate you up. And then afterward, I went uh, to talk to the owners or whatever. They're like, oh my God, that was great. And I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Here I am panicking. I'm like, well, this is done. I got nothing now. So they loved it. It takes a lot. So I, I want to put some context on this just because and I, cause I don't want to. I'm, I'm This is not against you in any way. They were incredibly rude to you and to Hal. That there was a group. Uh, so to again, to give context to everybody listening, we didn't have a stage. We were performing at the one end of the building and the bar ran along the entire building. And there was a group of people standing about four feet from the stage who were talking extremely loudly during your set and during Hal's set. And at that point, I looked at this as this show's already fucking ruined. Not you guys. These people have ruined. So when I got up, I'm like, you know what? They talked over my friends. They talked over people I respect. I'm tearing into these people. And one of two things is going to happen. Either the show's going to get shut down or they're going to shut up and actually listen to the rest of the show. And it actually made me wish that I had hosted the show instead of you. No, and I don't mean this again as offense to you. Oh, no, no. Because I'm I'm a belligerent asshole and I will go after people who are being dicks. And I was like, I went up as aggressive as humanly possible and it quelled them, which was insane. That group was talking to me after the show. The ones I called cunts were coming up to me and thanking me and telling me how much fun they had. And I'm like, I appreciate this. I really wish you guys had listened to my friends, though. Yeah, I but think like, I had said something like, hey, I promise you, if you listen, you'll like it. Exactly. Something like and, that. and you were right. But the thing is, you were dealing with people who were just pricks who were arrogant and felt that like they had ownership of this bar. They didn't want to listen to us. And when so that's my that believe me, that's one of my flaws. When somebody doesn't want to listen to me and I'm supposed to be talking, I'm going to fight real hard to make them listen. And I've done it in a lot of different ways at a lot of different shows, but at that on that night at that time, I, I was infuriated. I thought because uh, plus you had really good material and Hal had really good material, and I'm sitting there laughing. The people around us who are trying to listen are laughing, and if you remember too, there were people sitting behind the comics table and all throughout the bar who actually were trying to listen. So then on top of that, I'm looking at it as these people. I don't remember if it was a paid show or not, but no, it was free. It was free to get in. Okay, yeah, which is a trap. 
Yeah, exactly. But, but again, what are you going to do? That a lot of venues demanded. A lot of times, it's the only way you could get into a venue. I don't blame you for doing free shows. I get how it, that happened. No, man. Like we got paid. So no, but, no, no, I know. I know. When I say free, yeah. I mean venue. Charging. Oh no, no, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm talking for the people who might listen. But it's like it's I I think it's like a psychological thing. Like like if you have a five dollar, I mean as little as a five dollar admission, yes. people pay that and they're like, okay, we are ready to laugh because we paid to laugh. Right. When you, you have, when you have money. a free show, you're like. Oh fuck it! I don't give a shit. I didn't pay. Yeah, but they don't think they don't think. Oh, the bar has paid. Like that's their money, and there's a there's a complete disconnect. So psychologically, they're tuned out. And also have respect for the other people who are there watching the show. So now, on top of these people talking over my friends, now you have a venue that's half full of people who want to listen to the show, and you have a group of people who's distracting them from listening to the show. So now. I not only feel affronted on a, on a part of my fellow comics, now I feel it on behalf of the audience. Because if I was an audience member at a show, I've watched Zach perform before where somebody started heckling him and the entire audience tore them apart. He didn't even have to say a word because people were like, we're loving this. Why the fuck are you interrupting it? Right. You know what I mean? So to me, it was like, I'm defending my friends. I'm defending all these people who want who came out to watch a comedy show. I'm going to make these people... at the. Honestly, I thought, you know what, even if I pissed them off enough to leave, I'd rather them leave and have a little bit of a smaller audience of people who want to actually listen. Yeah, I feel like this is a silly question because I know the answer, but has that ever gone wrong for you? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, especially earlier on in my comedy career. Yeah, absolutely. I think the reason it worked that night was because I was self-assured, because I went up there knowing what I was going to say, and... I made it very clear who the enemy was. And I very quickly was able to rally everybody in the room who wasn't part of that group onto my side because the rest of the room knew I wasn't talking about them. I was talking about this one small group in the past. I didn't know how to do that. So I would like get up there and alienate the whole audience instead of zeroing in on the people who needed it. And I, I, that's a skill you just get with doing comedy more. You know what I mean? I mean, I believe me, I've had plenty of sets go very poorly. One of the things I'm known for is sex jokes. Uh, I, I definitely hit on women from the stage. One of the reasons I could get away with it is because they know I'm not serious and because look at me, I'm not. Right. They I'm, just need a head start and they're good. They're good. Exactly. Exactly. So, but, and also because I'm the kind of, like, I, I think that I have a very, and I, again, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I think I have a very honest smile. So when I laugh and tell jokes and I, I hit on girls or whatever from the stage, they know that it's in jest. They know there's no harm or no threat there. I'm using them as a piece on a board of a game I'm playing and the game is comedy. You know what I mean? I'm just yeah. using them as a little stand in for a joke or a way to push a joke forward or something. Uh, I never do. I, I very rarely ever target audience members uh, in a mean way. I always like the, I'll always like, if I hit on a girl, I'll then hit on her boyfriend. You know what I mean? I like, like hitting on the boyfriend way more. Oh, absolutely. And, and like my therapist was like, yeah, that's a deep seated problem. Like you might be gay. And I'm like, I, yeah, I get that. I accepted it. Like, you know, it's weird. Sexuality, uh, not in comedy has come up a lot lately in the world. And I'm definitely on board with the idea that like, I, I know I'm not gay because I don't, I'm not attracted to having sex with men, but I find lots of dudes attractive. And I think that being able to admit that is a positive step forward in any man's life. You I know think what if I mean? You, if you think objectively, how is it gay to say that, oh, Zach, all right, we shouldn't talk about Zach Hammond because we just spent yeah, six no. minutes talking about him blowing you. Definitely so, not. Yeah. Like, okay. It's like if you see like, like Ryan Reynolds and you say, I don't find him attractive. Bullshit. 
everybody does. Like, yeah. like he would, he was made to be attractive. Like, Absolutely. if Ryan I, I think, smiled at me, I would melt. There's no question about right, it. Right, right. Plus, he's like, funny and like whatever. I, I realize that I am a very big proponent of the idea that there's a spectrum of sexuality and everybody falls somewhere on it. And I think that where I fall on it is I only want to have sex with women, but there's a lot of guys who I would love to know what my beard feels like against their chest. <laughs> Against their bare chest, absolutely. Stephen Amell from Arrow, oh my god, that man is a fox. I would, holy shit, I would love to just feel his muscle. Now, do I, I Google him on IMDb or Pornhub? Uh, not Pornhub, no. Okay, if you okay. do a Google image search, you'll find a lot of shirtless pics of him. He is gorgeous. Okay. And that's the thing, that saying that does not make me feel insecure in any way. I'm still attracted to women as well. And here's the thing, if I woke up to, like, even the idea of gay being a negative thing, if I woke up tomorrow and I, and I decided, not decided, I felt that I was more attracted to men and I wanted to have sex with men, that wouldn't affect me in any way. That would be, sexuality is preference. It's like ice cream. You don't choose what your favorite ice cream is. You put something in your mouth and you're like, ooh, I like this. Or you're like, ooh, I don't like this. That's all there. <laughs> but seriously, what's your favorite ice cream? Uh, I would say mint chocolate chip is my classic favorite. You know what's funny? That's the one I always use because I like mint chocolate chip. It's not my favorite, but I do enjoy it and I'll eat it anytime that it's offered. When I was a kid, I loved mint chocolate chip and now I just yeah, don't, I don't have it anymore. Like, it's not that I don't same like here. it, but the only time I ever see it because friendlies are they're all closed and like yeah. the only time i see it is like at a chinese buffet mm-hmm. it's in one of those tubs yeah and like so that's when and i have impossible it. to scoop yeah even of course though, even though the uh scooper's been sitting in warm water oh my god that a million people have probably stuck their fingers in yeah like uh, once once the buffets are open they just got to get rid of that if you're going to a buffet dessert is the last thing you need you have a million right. options of food why do you need cake too you fat fuck <laughs> i'm saying that to myself too but I but mint chocolate chip because it's a very divisive ice cream. A lot of people hate it. That's the one I always use as a great example because if you eat mint chocolate chip ice cream, you either like it or you don't. With any kind of food or anything, attraction's the same way. If you look at somebody, you don't choose to be attracted to them. You don't say, "I want to be attracted to this person." You look at them, and something in your brain goes, "I'm attracted to them," or "I'm not attracted." You don't control it. So the idea of getting worked up about who you're attracted to or somebody not being attracted to you or anything like that isn't insane. There's things you could do to, let's say, make more people. Like, I know I would have more girls attracted to me if I lost weight, but I also don't care because that's not my big selling point. You know what I mean? Right. I'm never going to have rock hard abs. It's no matter how much weight I lose, I will never have the dedication unless I get cast in a Marvel movie to spend that much time in a gym. There's no way it's going to happen. You're a big so, Marvel fan, right? I'm a huge Marvel fan. Yeah. So like, and, I like, would, uh, and a DC TV fan. I don't know much about DC. Sure. Uh, I know some characters or whatever. I don't know yeah. if it's like if DC movies suck, but the TV is better. I have no idea. I don't, a lot of people hate DC movies. I'm fine with them. I don't think I think Marvel's much better, but DC's put out a lot of good ones. Wonder Woman, Shazam. Um, I, can't, I haven't gotten around to watching the Justice League director's cut yet, but uh, I have HBO Max and I plan on watching soon. I just imagine that if you're like a bisexual person, you're, you're open to everybody yeah. watching a Marvel movie must be. A basically porn a buffet right oh my god yeah like well, they, the- they have like a no uggos policy they really do they really do and i also think that you know i always find this a weird topic because like we talked about with attraction you can't really control it and hollywood is in the business of making money and the way you make money is by making things people want to see right 
So, like, there's a lot of... It's the same thing with the CW Arrowverse shows. Everybody on them is fucking gorgeous. But I think part of making entertainment, especially film and TV, is that if you want a lot of people to watch it, you have to have pretty people on there. I'm not saying that's right. And I would love no, to say that I could just the way it is star of a show. Um, and I do think there's a world in which that it's possible to not necessarily be conventionally attractive and still be the star of your own show. It certainly happened. It's it's happened before in the past, and it can't. I'm not saying it can't happen in the future, but it definitely helps to be you know in great shape to have a lot of fitness in your life to have a six pack or you know be able to be a size. I don't know what for a girl what would be a, a small size, a size two. Is that small? I guess. I mean, I know it's I small. No I don't know. I have the- no idea. Um, but at the same time, like I know, cause here's what's weird about me and I hate to use, I mean, she's so famous that it doesn't matter. She's never going to hear this, but I hate to ever poke fun at anybody for no reason. But Angelina Jolie, I always use as a great example. I'm a, I'm offended that you think she doesn't listen to this podcast. Does she? Why? You don't know, but just to, just to say she doesn't right off the bat, that's kind of hurtful. It's nothing against you. She has so many kids. I just assume that between the kids (laughs) and the Hollywood career, she doesn't get a lot of podcasting time. So you you think, you think, uh, it's, it has nothing to do with my obscurity. It's all about time. Absolutely. Okay. I give it that. I'm good. Listen, once those kids are in college, I'm pretty sure this is going to be first on our list. (laughs) How awesome would that be? That would be amazing. And (laughs) I I do think she's an amazing actress, but, and I'm not saying she's ugly by any means. I don't necessarily find her like super hot, but a lot of dudes do. And a lot of women do. Neither one of us are right or wrong. It's a preference. You know what I mean? I think Amy Fuller is one of the sexiest women in the world where a lot of people wouldn't oh, agree she's with gorgeous, that. Yeah. I think she's gorgeous, but I'm attracted to humor. So to me, she's fucking amazing. Well, I think I think a good and I same thing works with dudes. Thank God. But like like yeah. a sense of humor, it just, you know, it, it would push like a five to an eight for me. Like like it doesn't like it doesn't matter. I, I, and the same thing goes the other way. If you are very if you're a 10, but you're fucking dull. Yep. I don't give a shit. It's not going to work. I am by no means a Casanova, but I have dated some girls way out of my league in my life. And I can tell you that I have broken up with, not broken up because I was never serious, but I have stopped talking to girls that I was very attracted to because they were boring or unintelligent or just not fun to be around. To me, if I'm not going to have fun with somebody, I don't want to be around them. I, I, I just don't. That's not, a, I don't care how attractive they are by any, by anybody else's measure. A big part of why I want to be with somebody, whether it's a friend or a relationship, is how they make me feel and how they make me laugh and what kind of a person they are to other people and what their views and values are. So, yeah, I like I, I definitely would take Amy Poehler, say, over, you know, who's a famous supermodel, Kate Upton. Although I've, heard, I've seen Kate Upton a couple times and she seems to have a pretty good sense of humor, too. Yeah, I, I've never seen a movie with her in it. Uh, no, I've, I know- seen, I've seen interviews and stuff with her, but she se- she seems fun, too. She seems like a cool person. I, and I also find it extra fun. Like, I don't know if you ever have you ever heard of April O'Neil, the porn star, not the Ninja Turtles character? Yeah. So and, and yeah, I, think, I think I know her. I think <laughs> I think the name was familiar to me. I'm sure I've seen him. I'm sure I've seen her work. But well, the no, name no. I remember the name because of the. Uh, Ninja Turtles. Yes, and that's where she got her name. And by the way, uh, I've actually, and I'm not saying I don't watch porn because I watch a fucking ton of porn, but I've never seen April O'Neil do porn because I don't watch produced porn. I like the homemade shit because I'm a creep. But <laughs> she uh, she has done a ton of AMAs, and she's a geek. She loves, like, Dragon Ball and all this stuff I'm not even into. And I was like, damn, she's just, like, even though she was already very attractive, I was like, wow, this girl's super hot. And it was because I was reading an interview with her about all the shit she's into. That's what made me more attracted to her because I was like, damn, this, like, it seems. 
seems like it would be cool to hang out with a porn star who's into nerdy shit like Doctor Who. You know what I mean? Yeah, my favorite part of a relationship, and and I've only had three girlfriends, and you know, because society says that's way too many for me. And, <laughs> uh, but my favorite, my favorite part of that relationship, that dynamic, is the give and take of making fun of somebody. Right. Like I just, I love being told that. I'm a shithead or whatever, or like having having derogatory nicknames. Absolutely. Uh, just making fun of somebody. And when the humor stops, like when when those, you know, intentionally fake insults start to hurt or whatever, yeah. like they just the the woman can't take it anymore. It's like, oh boy, that's a big red flag. That's when I know it's going down. So it's funny that you say that because uh and I'm fine with talking about this, but I was recently hospitalized and uh I thought I was having a heart attack when I was hospitalized. And it turned out that my heart, and I'm not making this up. They did uh, x-ray, blood tests, all different types of tests on my heart. My heart's fine. For somebody who's 37 and used to weigh 600 pounds, my heart works great. So I went in there thinking I was dying. And it turned out that it was I was actually diagnosed with panic disorder. And I've always been a, a big supporter of removing the stigma around mental health because I think that it's silly that I, I honestly believe over 99% of the world's population needs to be in therapy. And I think there's nothing embarrassing about that. I think that the only thing that's shitty when it comes to mental health is the stigmas that surround it that are absolutely unfounded. You know what I mean? People have tragedy. People have trauma. Everybody goes through shit. And I think that everybody needs somebody to talk to. A lot of people probably need to be medicated. And again, there's no shame in that. I'm on medication now and I feel better than I felt in months. Well, like I, I'm in therapy now and I talk about it, you know, at least six times an episode yeah. and I fucking love it because, you know, I've been going for about a year and a half, mm-hmm. uh, depending on when this airs, but, but about a year and a half and my life has been remarkably better. I yeah. mean, like I can point to what day my life got better by when I started therapy and, and, you know, oh, I got more shows. I, I had better sets, got more venues. Like things have taken a definite upturn since going to therapy. And I, I think everybody, it's, we all need it. We yeah. all are dealing with something that we've repressed or whatever. And it's just helpful to talk to somebody who is yes. supposed to be objective and Absolutely. will give you, will tell you that you're an asshole or sometimes, or will tell you you're right. And, you know, she's been a problem or he's been a problem. Yep. You know, you need to hear that, that you're not just kind of like throwing possibilities into the wind and eh, maybe it's all me. Maybe it's not me. You have no idea. Talk to somebody who's paid to listen. Absolutely. And you might end up being okay. Absolutely. And I think part of that too, is that we need to make therapy more affordable and available for everybody, uh, or at least anybody who wants it. Because right now I have a lot of friends who want to go to therapy and can't because they either can't afford it or because their insurance doesn't cover it. And that blows my mind. I think that I'm, and, and we could fill up a 20 hour podcast on this, but I, well, that I, was the plan. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. Okay. I, I, my, my schedule is pretty clear again, still in recovery mode from the hospital. So, um, when I went to the hospital, they, uh, found out that I, I've stayed Stage four kidney disease, which I knew for a long time. They've known about that. But I was on Cymbalta, which is a depression med or anti-anxiety or something like that. Sorry, 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 sorry. There's an alarm going off. Um, So I was uh, on this medicine, Cymbalta, and it gets broken down in the kidneys. And I'm assuming you have healthy kidneys, probably? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Or at least nothing that a doctor's ever told you to worry about. No, no, I haven't checked on it yet. Well, I mean, if you've had blood work in the last 10 years, they would have told you if your kidney function was down. Yeah, yeah. No problems yeah. that I know of. Okay. So in your body, if you were to take, say, Cymbalta, your body would process it and then break it down in your kidneys. My kidneys don't do that. 
And apparently something that my doctor and my kidney doctor never thought about when we put it being on Cymbalta and a psychologist actually told us about this was that Cymbalta gets broken down in the kidneys. And if it, if you have non-functioning kidneys or poorly functioning kidneys like mine, and you're not on dialysis, which I'm not because I don't need to be yet, uh, Cymbalta doesn't get broken down. It basically metabolizes and stays in your body. And a buildup of that can cause psychosis and bipolar disorder and all these other crazy mental problems. And I had no idea. And I spent, I literally was having nonstop panic attacks for probably three months, two, two to three months before I went to the hospital. I wasn't getting out of bed. I wasn't leaving my bedroom. Uh, I wasn't going out anywhere. I wasn't working. I wasn't doing anything. I thought I was dying every day. I was afraid to literally walk to the bathroom, which is literally through my bedroom because I thought I was going to keel over and die of a heart attack from walking four steps. Jesus. And mind you, I'm over 200 pounds lighter than I was at my heavy. And I never went through this when I weighed over 600 pounds. So yeah, it was scary. It was really scary. It was, it was a lot of just laying or sitting in my bed, just staring into space, being terrified of death. That was the last three months. So how did you get out of that funk? Was it just a matter of going and and finding out the problem? Well, part of it was, there was no way I was ever going to stop having the panic attacks were definitely caused by the medicine. They told me that in the hospital. And I can tell you, since I got out of the hospital i haven't had a single one since they changed my medication so i know for a fact it was medic that was a medicine issue but definitely part of it too was a funk because then you get into this feedback loop of feeling horrible and feeling depressed and feeling scared for your life which makes you not want to do anything which makes you more scared which makes you not want to do anything which makes you more scared it's just a never-ending vicious cycle of depression and i was afraid of going to the hospital for the same reason i was afraid they were going to tell me i'm on my deathbed i was afraid that if i went there they're gonna be like yeah you have 20 minutes left to live and the problem with that is that if you ever had a panic attack, you know that panic attacks could last, last a very long time, whereas a heart attack would be instantaneous. Right. But that kind of logic doesn't really work when you're in the throes of a panic attack all the time. You know what I mean? Right, because everything is going bonkers. Exactly. Exactly. So it was – the biggest change was the second I was in the ER, within 20 minutes, they gave me an adamant. And that I literally felt – so when I got into the hospital, they asked me to describe what I was feeling about my panic, plus my chest pain and everything else. But the panic I described to them as – I feel like panic is a wave that is right behind me and always about to crash over me. And if I don't focus 100% of my will constantly on holding it at bay, it will devour me. It will envelop me and I will be lost in this raging tide of misery. And that literal physical feeling of a wave of absolute blackness being behind me within 20 minutes of taking an Ativan, I felt like the wave moved 50 yards away. That quickly? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was crazy. And it's one of the reasons why I get like, I, and I'm not going to say names, but it's not a comic anyways, but a female friend of mine messaged me recently and she was kind of talking, like she was telling me about her depression, but she was talking shit on her boyfriend for taking Xanax. And I'm like, listen, don't ever talk shit on anybody who uses medicine to control their problems because that's what it's there for. These are uncontrollable problems otherwise. And medication is often the right way to deal with. Right. And I've always believed that, but I, I and let me be clear. When I, this happened, I was on Xanax. It turned out Xanax wasn't doing it for me. I took one, I think it was five or ten. I don't know what the measurement is, but a small dose of Ativan, and I felt it push away. And then, as I stayed in the hospital for days, and the Cymbalta got out of my system, and they switched me to Celexa. Celexa is like Celexa and Cymbalta are both everyday medications that you take that take a while to build up, whereas Ativan and Xanax are like quick acting ones for panic attacks and things like that. 
So like Xanax and Ativan, you're not supposed to take those every day, all like three times a day, unless you absolutely need to. Whereas Celexa or Cymbalta are something that you can take every day as part of your regimen, and it shouldn't hurt most healthy people. Now, obviously with Cymbalta, I wasn't a healthy person and I have bad kidneys and that was an oversight, but we fixed that. But the Celexa actually probably isn't even still fully up in my system yet. But getting the Cymbalta out of my system, yeah, there was an like I literally as every day went by in the hospital, I felt better and better and better. So what did you do to kill the time when you're in the hospital? Like you got well, a phone. You know what really like, su- you know what really sucks? The last time I was in the hospital, I had my lap and this was like two years ago. I had my laptop, I had my phone, and I was making videos nonstop. I was making all these videos about interviewing like the nursing staff and reviewing the food and all this shit. And it was a lot of fun. This time was a lot darker time. It was a lot of just sitting in silence, putting out like they have basic cable in there. And it was just like, I mean, I remember the one day I just watched all the Harry Potter movies, which I used to love. And I just sat there and kind of like a stupor kind of like letting them play fucking around on my phone. I didn't even have my phone charger. So my phone would die all the time. And oh, I had, no. a, yeah, there was a, that, a that's almost as, that's almost as worse as your kidneys dying. It is. It really is. Your phone is your last line of defense. It's your last line of entertainment when you're in a situation like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. When you have nothing else, at least you have your phone that you could be on. And I was, a lot of people were messaging me to be honest. Yeah. I'm not saying I was looking for pity, but I did post that I was in the hospital because I was hoping some people would like just message me so I'd have some time to kill by talking to me. You know what I mean? Like I didn't like every time everybody messaged me, I was always like, I'm fine, even though I wasn't, because I just wanted to bullshit with people. You know what I mean? Every conversation ended up just being about how they're doing and what's going on and I was fine. I just wanted distraction and I wanted it from people I care about who I like instead of having like nothing. I will say this. The nursing staff at Geisinger CMC in Scranton was amazing. They took really good care of me. There was one doctor who was a dick to me and the nursing staff ripped him apart. Like they were really awesome. They took really good care. He there was one doctor who thought I was just there for drugs. And I'm like, and I literally said to him point blank, I was like, dude, I'm a stand up comic who tours. I could get illegal drugs anywhere I fucking want. I am here because I want help, not just medication. And he kind of was like taken aback by it. I'm like, oh, do you not have people often tell you that they could get the drugs you have here anywhere? Because I fucking can. I'm not here. If I wanted to just get a buffet of drugs, I would call some of my friends. I'm here because I want help from professionals. So stop looking at me like a drug addict and start helping me. And this was like already three days into it where I was much more in control of myself. And all the nurses knew that. And they were like, this is fucking absurd. And they went after him real hard. And I really appreciated it. Because again, I, I I listen. I can get weed or anything else I want anywhere I want. I don't need that. I want. I wanted help, and everybody deserves that. I'm not. I'm not special. Everybody deserves what I got. You know what I mean? I knew you were getting better or weren't dead, like right. or on the way mm-hmm. when Zach Hammond was was texting you, or or I'm sorry, when he was posting on Facebook, like your funeral arrangements or yes. whatever. Yeah. I think he told me, I posted something about Zach and he said, yeah, when, not if, but when Dan dies, right. And if Ellen Doyle dies, you're my new best friend. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, it's good. And then, you know, you're, you're always, you know, heart reacting to it or, or whatever. It's like, yep. okay, he's, he's in on the joke too. Yep. I absolutely am. I, Zach has carte blanche to make fun of whatever he wants to on me. He knows that just like I have it with him. Uh, and all my friends do. You do too, for that matter. And you, I, you've made jokes like that before and I love it. I, oh, absolutely. I listen until I'm actually dying. I want us to make jokes about it. And then when I'm really dying, we're still going to make jokes about it. Because that's how we are. Have you ever uh, fantasized about your funeral? 
Yes, many times. Do you have, do you have a plan? Because, like, you know, we, we mentioned it earlier with jokes, but, you know, it's not just that your parents did, and your brother didn't like you. They hated you, and that's why they died. But, did, but like, yes. you are you have to plan your own funeral now. Like, have I you, have you yeah. thought about that? Yeah, uh, it's expectation versus reality. Expectation is the Obama inauguration. Reality is the Trump inauguration. <laughs> I... I, as much as I want, to, I, I want to believe there's going to be a line stretching around the block. It'll probably be like eight people coming to it and like one daisy just torn out on the ground. Right, right. It'll be like a show I produce. Yeah, well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and don't sell yourself short because most of your – every show I've done with you, I think almost all of them have been huge successes. We've always had – Yeah, we'll be all right. Yeah, we but no good. daisies. We do no daisies, no daisies. Also, and by the way, real quick, I also want to give a shout out to Ellen Doyle because uh, you mentioned her. And not only uh, do I think she's one of the most amazing human beings on the planet, she's one of the best comics. Oh, now I know what to edit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's your funeral going to be like? Uh, I want the so here. The only thing I know for sure is as I'm lowered into the ground, I want the Dave Matthews song "Ants Marching" played. Oh, that's a good one. Not I not like the song. not the studio version, a live version. They're better live than studio. But you know what's weird? I don't think about my funeral. I have thought about it, obviously, I, and I think it's more an ego thing. We all think about like how many people would show up, how oh, yeah. sad they would be. Like, I'd love to think about like. Like my friend Laura, who I dated in college, who we're still friends, but like she has a boyfriend, I have a girlfriend, but I always thought she was a beautiful, wonderful woman. And I really hope that she's like devastated by it and she's crying over my coffin. It's not going to happen, but I wish it would. But yeah, I feel, I actually, this is the problem. And this is how I ended up in the hot. I, I was dwelling on death nonstop, not my funeral. Even I was just, I was, I am so preoccupied with my own death that it's getting in the way of my life. And I, it's something I'm still actively working on. I am way too preoccupied with my own demise. Well, let's talk about something happy. Uh, sure. Do you remember your worst show? <laughs> um oh my god i've had so many bad shit shows it's hard to pick one i've uh okay no i could pick one that was really my low point so uh have you ever done an outdoor comedy show um i don't so, think so i i i'm by the time this airs yes for it's having me down in pottsville so i will have okay. i will have done I one i will say this in the current climate outdoor shows are not going to be like they used to. they're going to be much better if you saw Chappelle's show. The yeah. uh, 859, I think it was called? 846. Yeah. 846, the horrible amount of time that George Floyd uh, took to be murdered. Chappelle's show, I thought was, uh, not Chappelle's show, the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. This special that he just did, I thought was incredible, even though there weren't really many jokes in it. But if you notice, he did that one outside. And I think as long as the, uh, cr- the crowd is there for the comedy show, it'll work. I did a show a couple years ago for this thing called the Luzerne Fall. I think it was the Fall Festival or something like that, or the Harvest Festival. Not the Harvest Festival. That's more correct. It was this outdoor festival down in Luzerne, PA, which is about a half hour from me. And it, it, we thought we were doing comedy inside this coffee shop down there, and we find out we're doing it outside. And that's not the bad part. The bad part was that we were doing it, and the audience was across the street from us, and the street wasn't closed. So we were literally doing comedy into a mic, into a couple of speakers that were set up, projecting to people across a busy street. Can you even imagine trying to tell jokes with cars between you and the audience? No. It's fucking horrible. At one point during it, I got heckled by like a 12-year-old. And my impotent ass response was, at least I'm not a virgin. And I said that to a 12-year-old who heckled me. And I don't remember what his burn was, but it was way better than my at least I'm not a virgin line. And I ended up cutting that. That was probably the worst show. That or... uh, 
uh, early on in my career, I convinced Zach, who was a good, who we became friends very quickly, but he was on a level much like now, much higher than me. A friend of mine asked me to do a surprise birthday party for her boyfriend. And I should tell you that the median age at this party was like 55. Okay. It was a lot of older people and kids, and it was in a very nice restaurant in their back room, and she wanted to surprise her husband. She was a coworker of mine. She wanted to surprise her husband or boyfriend or whatever it was with stand-up comedy. So I don't have a huge ego. I was like, well, I can't do it alone. I need a much better comic with me, so I asked Zach to do it. Zach, being a good friend, was like, sure, how bad could it be? I was supposed to do 15 minutes. I go up there, and I launch into my set, which here's the thing about comedy. In a comedy club, talking about yourself works great. When you're doing a surprise birthday party that nobody expected there to be comedy at except for one person, getting up there and talking about my sex life or how little my dick is or how fat I am, they don't give a fuck. They (laughs) heckled me, talked over me, booed me, like literally everything you could possibly do. And it was all within the course of about four minutes. I was supposed to do 15 minutes. I cut out after four minutes and I got off stage and Zach was like, you are a piece of fucking shit. He, He goes up and this is how professional he is i had never seen zach do real crowd work before this point like he'd done a little bit but his sets were always very you know very manicured very fine-tuned he went up there and just started busting balls with the audience and he killed he did like a half hour or so and fucking annihilated i didn't even know he had it in him and again that's how stupid i was that i i I should say i had only known him for a couple months at this time and through comedy i had not seen him bust balls on stage like that he fucking massacred he did great they loved him they were thanking him after the set and i learned a lot that day that was by far the worst worst performance i personally have ever had and i learned so much about learning to read a room learning what the right situation for comedy is and when you're not in the right situation for comedy you need to change what you're doing even if it means scrapping every one of your jokes if i get asked to MC some kind of event i'm not going to go up there and launch into my set i'm going to write all new stuff tailored to what i'm doing there and it actually did pay off a couple months later. My job asked me to MC a fundraiser for a cancer, uh, pardon me, for a cancer victim who we worked with who was very young. And I didn't do any of my jokes. I just made fun of like my bosses and the executive staff of our company and all this stuff. And it killed. It absolutely killed. And I learned that from Zach. I learned that from bombing, having my worst show, and then watching him follow me and kill and pick up the ball that I dropped. I remember seeing you, and this this is my impression of you from afar. I mean, I've worked with you before, but how I describe you to certain people, not certain people, but how I describe you to some people is I remember seeing a clip of you at the NEPA scene live mic on the mm-hmm. Tuesdays at the V-Spot. Yep. And I just remember tuning in and I saw angry Dan Hoppel. And it yep. seemed like, like, and I've seen you at that show. And yep. you, it almost seems like you look for somebody who's been heckling the yep. entire night, much like Whitney Point. And when, the first thing you do when you get on stage is say, okay, fuck you. Yeah. The show is about you. So one thing I will say, and again, I hate saying anything positive about myself because I was raised Catholic, but the V-Spot and NEPA scene, they're two of those places where I have built up a reputation. And when I get on stage, people stop and listen to me. And the reason is, is because of the years of acting like that, of taking command of, I'm not, I don't want to put down any other comics, but you know, at any open mic, you get a lot of shit performers, especially one where you're going to have 25 acts. And I'm not putting Rich Howells down at all. I love any PA scene and I love the work he does, but he does run open mics that go for like four or five hours sometimes. And you could get a lot of shit acts during that. And I don't, here's the thing, whether they're a shit act or not, 
I've watched shit acts. If I don't like what I'm watching, I'm not going to interrupt the show. I'm just going to talk quietly to my friends or go on my phone or do something else. I'm not going to be a dick. I'm not going to interrupt other people who want to give this person a chance. I have no patience for that. So if I'm at an open mic or any kind of show and I see people consistently being like that, yeah, my opening is to go after them and go after them hard. But because of that, I could go to the V spot now and do a set. And the second I take the stage, like 90% of the bar just shuts up. And I love that feeling. And it's, it's not an arrogant thing. I love the fact that we, that we have this relationship, me and the audience, where they know that they could trust me to make them laugh for 10 minutes. So they give me the time of day. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've never been in that position, but yeah. <laughs> you have. <laughs> yeah. I have. I have. I, it's, it's the best feeling in the world. I love it. And, but I did have to fight very hard for that. And, you know, it's funny. Like, some people give me shit for doing a lot of the jokes I've done for a long time. I have never put out an album. And I don't, t- like, I don't tour full time. So I'm not in a position like Zach where I could write an hour of material every year. I wish I could. I'm just not that good. But, you know, some people rip on me for having the same set. Uh, or similar sets or I'm like, dude, if I'm out on the road and performing in front of different people, who the fuck cares? It's all new to them. Yeah, exactly. And on top of that, people who literally just write jokes for one-time use all the time, I mean, there are situations where you're going to have to write one-time use jokes. If you're emceeing an event or if you're doing a kind of show where it's like Christmas themed or Halloween themed, yeah, you might write one-time use jokes then. But for the most part, the point of being a comic is honing your material to the point where it sounds natural like it's the first time you're saying it. I always have to say to, to other comics, like, and I shouldn't say all of the comics, some other comics who don't understand the art. Like, when you watch a Tom Segura special or a Sarah Silverman special or whoever your favorite comic is, that sounds like it's the first time they're saying that shit, but it's not. They've been honing that same set for a year or more on the road every night, doing that hour in front of other people, changing things, adding tags, refining, honing, making it perfect. That's what a comic is. And I'm not saying you should have the same set of jokes forever, but it's about making a perfect little thing until it's perfect and then letting it go. And I honestly don't think my set's perfect at this point. I have a 30-minute feature set that I love, but I know it can be better. And I know that I have an hour somewhere in there that I need to fucking work out the kinks on and start getting out and doing hour sets. But, like, the biggest downside to doing comedy is if you're not willing to perform in front of varied audiences, meaning more than one venue... You're never going to grow. No, no, definitely not. You can't just keep going to the one same open mic every week. Even if you're doing the same jokes and honing them, it's still in front of a contained set of people. You have to branch out. You're never going to get better if you don't. That's why I have so much respect for somebody who travels a lot. Yeah. Like like not even for shows, but for, you know, I'm going to hit two mics a week. I'm going to hit three mics a week. Like if you, you know, you've done the open mic in Lewisburg. I have, yeah. You know, and and like you've come up to Binghamton before. You've got Scranton. I'm sure you've gone to Lehigh Valley and and Reading. I have. So it's like you have to do that stuff. Yeah. There was, there was my, I feel like my heyday of comedy was probably like four years ago. There was a point where. Even just in Scranton alone, you can do like five different venues a week. We had tons of open mics and other opportunities at one point. And it was awesome because granted it was still in one area, but it was different audiences every time. It was a different set of people that would go to those places. And that alone was just like the the living that life where I was doing like four or five open mics a week was so I missed that so much. I loved it. I know if I lived in New York City, I'd be able to do that, but Very early on, I met a guy named Josh Spear who was like, listen, if you move to New York City, talent doesn't necessarily mean anything. You could get lost in the shuffle just because of the sheer number of comics there. 
Uh, whereas if you live in a place like Scranton with a much smaller scene, you have a real chance to shine. And I took that to heart. It's one of the reasons why I've never attempted to move to like Chicago or New York City or anything, because in the Internet age, you could be a comic from anywhere as long as you're willing to have a scene near you. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. But you, so get, I, you just got to work for it. Exactly. Exactly. And, I, you know, one of the things that I, I, I want to devote my life to moving forward is starting to put out more content in other ways. I want to start podcasting. I want to start putting out sketches and videos and all other types of shit, because in today's world, the best kind of comics or the most entertaining comics are content creators, the ones who are constantly putting out new content. And even in court, you know, it's funny. We look at not being on the road as a bad thing right now. And in a lot of ways, it absolutely is. Of course, we're stand-up comics. We need to be out there. But at the same time, we have an opportunity to do a lot of things because of the quarantine on our hands. You know what I mean? We have opportunity to stay home and, and write sketches and, and film stuff. And people are home, too. We're just not we're, – we're not the only ones staying in our houses. So are they, meaning we could, per, we could create entertainment for them to consume and get our names out there like that. Yeah. I mean, I've been writing the entire time. I've been doing the yeah. virtual open mics and I've yeah. had uh, shows sporadically start to pop up in like June and July. But like just for podcasting, dude, like like I said, I'm I'm three months ahead of where because I, yeah. I might I might end up releasing to a week because I've got that much in the tank where I feel like oh, if I record with Dan, I might not be able to get that out until fucking December. Yeah, no, that I seems totally, weird. But like totally like eventually, it. eventually no. I'm going to be six or eight months ahead. It's weird. Don't ever be upset about having an excess of material. Or of content. It's not a bad thing. Yeah, but my head will be like, well, Dan <laughs> Dan might be dead soon. But like like he might be annoyed. Like like, oh, oh. He, I just I wasted my time for him. And it's like so that that's my head. A funny story about that. I did an interview with Rich Howells in NEPA scene because the first open mic he ran, as far as I know, under the NEPA scene banner was at the Woodlands in Wilkes-Barre. And that was a, it was a small mic. It was a lot of fun. It ran for, I think, two seasons. And the way that worked is everybody who won one of the weekly contests was part of this end-of-the-season showcase at the Woodlands. And he asked, I won, but he also wanted me to MC the event, which I was totally fine with because I love hosting events. And he interviewed me, and the event wasn't for like three months. And I remember thinking, like, I keep seeing him publish these interviews with other people, and I'm like, why the fuck isn't mine out yet? And it was a little bothersome. The day of the show, he put out this gigantic fucking article about me. I had to leave work early to go to this show to get ready. And I remember that I got an alert at like 3.30 in the afternoon as I was leaving work that this article went up. And I sat in my car and read it on my phone and I was bawling, literally fucking weeping at how beautiful, like he made my fat ass sound like an important person. Like I actually mattered. Must've been a good writer. He was, he's an amazing writer. And <laughs> it, it, it was, it, it literally touched my heart in a way very few people ever have. And I just remember sitting there like, I'm so glad he waited. Like, I'm so glad that he waited till that day to publish it because it just made it feel so much more special. So yeah, no, I, it's again, it was a learning experience and a part of learning about the entertainment business and about timing and about content and about, you know, like you said, you have months worth of people to that of interviews already stacked that you could publish. So if I go on Facebook next week and I see that you put out another one, it's not going to make me upset. It's going to make me more excited for when mine comes, up, no matter how long it takes. Yeah, and I always think like like the better ones are coming later. Yeah, no, you're so, absolutely right. I, I believe me. I don't care when mine comes out. I'm just excited that it's going to at some point. Believe me, I, I, I will well, never. 
I wait for never, the yeah, wait for the funeral. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was gonna say I'm gonna wait for you to be in the deathbed. What are you gonna do if I stay healthy though? I don't know, it's just gonna be there. That's just gonna be in the ether. <laughs> the, well, waiting for my demise to the, come up. Well, there's no sense in, in like making you happy. No, God no. I listen, I was happy a lot in my life. No, I don't deserve anymore. <laughs> Well, dude, I, I had a lot of fun talking to you, and, and we could talk there? for a while afterward, but oh is there anything God. you want to plug? Uh, honestly, do you have any shows coming up? Yeah, I've got I've got a couple. What I'd like to do with my plug time is instead of – because I don't – here's the thing. I've been offered a couple shows. I talked to my doctor about it. I am in one of the higher-risk groups for COVID-19, so I made the choice to – I'm going to – even though I could go out on the road now, I'm going to stay out for a little bit. Uh, I want to get myself healthier. I don't think a few months of not touring is going to necessarily adversely affect my my career in the long run i'd much rather protect my health at this point so i'm gonna try to create content from my home but what i really want to do is promote my friend stuff because i have a lot of friends who are doing amazing things so if i could take this moment i want to talk about what you're doing and what about a couple of my other friends are doing oh i appreciate it yeah uh no for me it's just like like i'm getting venues back and, okay. and trying to get more people gigs and stage time so, so you know, the podcast. everybody listening i want to make sure that you follow mike peters on facebook <laughs> no i'm i'm being dead serious i appreciate mike, it you post shows nonstop. I love you use. I, I love the fact that you always use the same format for your posters for person because I know here's the thing. It's a clean format. And the second it pops up on my feed, I know it's for a show. So I stop and look always. It's smart marketing. Keep an eye on Mike's Facebook page for any shows that are coming up that he's producing or performing on, or both, obviously. Zach Hammond and Ellen Doyle are out on the road. You could find them both on Facebook. That's Zach Hammond and Ellen Doyle. Uh, they have a bunch of shows coming up all over the Northeast. Uh, oh, we're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, two, and two other quick ones. Uh, my friend Josh Zurich, Z-U-R-E-K, just put out his new EP last night at midnight, it, well, at, at least at the time of this recording. Uh, I listened to it. He live streamed it on Twitch. It's a beautiful album. He has an amazing voice. He's a great musician. He's part of the band E57, which is a great Scranton band. His new album just came out. It's absolutely phenomenal. I got to listen to the whole thing on Twitch. I was, I, it was funny. I tweet or I commented in his Twitch chat during it that I was listening to it while I was playing a video game and I died multiple times in the video game because I was literally so entranced by a song that I forgot to play. And uh, oh, there's a, uh, uh, a friend of mine, John Yancondi, just put out a new movie, Baby Frankenstein, which Zach and I were actually cast in, but then our role was cut before we ever got... We got to go up there and get in makeup and everything, but they never actually filmed us. But that movie just came out, and I haven't seen it yet, but he's a great filmmaker, and I'm sure it's a good movie, and I've heard nothing but positive things about it. Elliot Elliot is on Facebook doing a lot of cool stuff. Elvis Aaron is on Facebook doing a lot of cool stuff. Just a lot of people. I, I, I am fortunate that I am friends with a lot of people who are much funnier, more creative, more artistic, and better than me. So I get to reap the rewards of them. Oh, and Brandon McNulty just wrote a new book, which I don't remember the name of. But if you look up Brandon McNulty, uh, he has a book out that's a horror thriller that I, I think it's like Bad Wood. No, I don't want to mess it up and say the wrong name. But I know that he just put out a book and... I've read the reviews on that and it's phenomenal. And I'm actually getting it on my Kindle as soon as I get my paycheck. Well, on behalf of everybody you just mentioned, I just want to thank you for setting such a low bar 
to make us look so good. I listen. I set the lowest bar possible because I like to make others shine. <laughs> dude, I appreciate it. I had a whole lot of fun. No, Mike, you're one of my dude. You were so worth the wait. Thank you so much. You're one of my favorite people in the world. I've wanted to be on the podcast forever. I've listened to other episodes. You're amazing. You are a good interviewer. You are a great stand-up comic, and you are a great producer. And I've literally told people a million times, with you nowhere in sight, that if you see a Mike Peters show come up on your newsfeed or in your area, you fucking go to that show because you will have a blast. I've, and I've said that when you were never around to hear it because I truly believe it. And it's not for your benefit. It's because it's the truth. Uh, thank you, man. That means a whole lot. And I'm going to go cry truth. and throw up or no, do. Dude, you put on some of the best shows in the New York, Pennsylvania area, and you should be really fucking proud of it. I'm dead serious. I'm not saying that. I will gladly say that I have been the low point of a lot of your shows, and you've put on people <laughs> who true. shined. You have that put on people true. who blew it out of the water, and I am very proud to have been a part of those. Well, you've saved a couple shows of mine, too. Well, thank so. you. I appreciate that, and I will, I will do it whenever I can. All right, man. Hey, thank you so much. And uh, No, thank you so much, man. It was a blast. All right. I'll talk to you in a bit.